So if you're not there already, find your way to Amos chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 to set the stage for where we'll go. Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is what the Lord of the Lord says. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider the sins of Israel, I pray that you wouldn't let us count it as the sins of others in a place far away in a time long ago. Lord, remind us that you are the same God the same faithful, covenant-keeping God, the one who displays your righteousness and your power from generation to generation. So, Lord, as we go through your word today, will you open our eyes? Remove the stubborn blindness that sin brings us into. Strip away the calluses on our often cold hearts and help us to see you in your glory, in your holiness, in your majesty. And help us to respond in worship. Lord, on our own, we fight those things, and so we desperately need your help, not simply to see and to hear, but to understand and then to respond. And so we pray to the God who is mighty to save. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we've talked a lot about the idea of lament, especially as we went through Joel the idea that God would take up a lament over his people. And really, lament was what was missing in their lives. Lament is sorrow directed towards something. We can be uh, lamenting over a death, but particular to the minor prophets, there's a lament over sin. There's a right place for sorrow over sin, sorrow that is not despair. Despair is sorrow with no hope on the other side of it. Lament is directed sorrow. It is sorrow uh, pointed at an object that then moves toward a right response. But Israel doesn't lament. We just read in verses 1 through 3 that God takes up a lamentation over Israel, but they refuse to. They're so hard, they're so calloused, they're so desensitized to their sin that there's no place for lament. And so God will lament for them. He pictures Israel like a young woman, a virgin Israel in her beauty and in her purity, now forsaken and fallen with no one there to raise her up. It's this sobering picture of the reality of sin and its consequences. But where do you go from there? I mean, if God is taking up a lament over the nation, it is a certainty that judgment is coming. And as God talks through these pieces and these parts of judgment, they're given as certainties. It's not this might happen. It's this is what is going to come. Israel is fallen and there's no one there to raise her up. The city that had a thousand is going to have a hundred. The city that had a hundred is going to have ten. And there's no ifs or maybes about it. This is simply what's coming. So where do you go from there? Uh, where do you go from the certainty of judgment? How do you find hope? How do you move on? Because Amos doesn't end there. And what we're going to see is that in five and six, God expresses his desire for his people, particularly in the first three quarters of chapter 5. God expresses his desire for his people to return to him. He calls them to turn away from destruction. He calls them to turn away from death and instead to seek the Lord and find blessing and protection. And then in the last part of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6, 
We're going to look at the defiance of a people who refuse to respond to that call. But as we open chapter 5, let's take again a look at what we see on the wall behind us. That God in His sovereignty and in His holiness is a God of justice. But there in the background, woven like a beautiful scarlet thread of redemption, even through the most difficult and destructive, we might say, parts of Scripture, is this thread of mercy from the God who is faithful to His people. But what is it going to look like? See, that call for repentance, that call to seek the Lord, that drives most of this. Verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. That's the call. Seek me and live. Which should be very striking to us because there's judgment, there's death promised. And God says it doesn't have to be that way. If you would only turn, if you would only seek me, you would find life instead of death. You would find security instead of judgment. Walter even brought that up last week. All the way back in Deuteronomy, there's that call. Turn, seek the Lord, do this, and live. You do not need to go down the path you're going down. But what is it going to look like? Even though their sin is constant, even though their rebellion is absolutely clear, God calls them to seek him and live. But what will it look like if the people were to turn and seek him? What is it that God wants What is it that God wants to see expressed in their life? And the first one that he wants to see, it would be characterized by real worship. Their seeking the Lord would result in real worship. Verse 5, But do not seek Bethel, and do not go into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. These people are characterized by false and failed worship, something that Amos is going to clarify even later on in this same chapter. And Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba, they're these places where the people would go to participate in that failed worship. You remember, uh, God gave a place where he was to be worshipped. The temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, that was his chosen, set-apart, distinct place. And as soon as the nation split, the place changed for the north, not in God's eyes. Bethel, Dan, Alternate sites of worship, Beersheba, Gilgal, places where the people would go and they would participate in what on the outside looked like worship but was anything other than what God had called them to. And God reminds them that these places, they're going to be torn down. Gilgal, Bethel, Beersheba, they're going to come to nothing. All these things that you assume are worship for the sake of doing something that God might want, they're all going to come to nothing. They're all going to be torn down, utterly removed. And so in seeking the Lord, this is going to look like turning from their false worship, turning from their wicked worship, turning from their utterly failed worship, and again, we'll see that more later in the chapter, and turning toward real worship. The second thing that we're going to see, the call to seek the Lord, is that they would find the object of real power. Not just real worship, but that they would see real power. Verse 6, seek the Lord and live. That call once again, turn from what you're doing and seek after the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Again, that picture of fire, just like he used of the nations in chapter 1 and 2. And look what he says in verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion... And turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. Now the people of Israel are reminded here in this paragraph about the awesome power of the God who calls them. He says, return to the one who made the stars. 
Now, if you look at this next slide, you will see a picture of those two constellations that he talks about. Pleiades there on the right, also called the Seven Sisters. Orion there on the left, one of the most widely known and clearly visible constellations. And we look at those and we say, that's nice. They're stars. Why bring it up? Well, because uh, even though that one on the right is called the Seven Sisters, it's made up of something along the lines of 800 stars. And a conservative estimate is that that cluster is about 47 trillion miles across. What looks like a, a spot in our night sky, 47 trillion miles across. And when you look at that uh, Orion, that constellation, well, that's anywhere between 240 light years and 1,360 light years away, depending on the star you're talking about. And that's like a 1.4 with 15 zeros behind it miles away. I'm not going to try and pronounce that number. I know it exists. The engineers will tell me later. Here's the point. You and I see those stars, and we cannot comprehend the vastness behind those things. And Amos says, seek the God who put them there and knows them by name. And if that wasn't enough, he calls for the waters of the sea, and he pours them out on the surface of the earth. Yahweh is his name. That same God who with the word formed the universe, who placed every star exactly where it ought to be, holds the vastness of the oceans in the palm of his hand. No tide comes a millimeter farther than he decrees. Israel, seek that God and live. Because verse 9, he who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Here's the thing. Who could possibly hope to stand against the judgment of that kind of God? But when you have a sense of the God of that kind of power, that kind of majesty, who could stand in rebellion against him? But the other side of that if you seek that God and if He has called you His people, who is there to harm you? What army, what human, what circumstance could take you out of the hands of a God who is that big? Israel, seek the Lord. Seek that God and live. And finally, if they turn, it's going to show itself as they seek what we call real justice. Because what's happening in the nation now? Well, look at verse 10. This is a picture of things in Israel now. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Now, the gate of the city was the place where transactions were done, business, uh, legal matters, where the elders would, would rule on things. Somewhere out there, there is a picture that exists of Dr. Bealey kneeling down before me in a gate in Israel. Um, I was going to show it, but we'll spare the dignity. <laughs> it's, it's a formal, it's an official place. It's the place where you would expect to go and receive justice for your legal matters, for your civil matters, and yet... There is no justice there. And now it's to the point where anyone who speaks against the injustice that's happening is hated. The one who stands for truth is seen as the outcast. 
The one who says and does what is right is abhorred, is hated by the people. And not only that, it says they, they trample on the poor. They exact taxes of grain from him. You've built houses hewn of stone, but you, do not, but you will not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you will not drink their wine. They've taxed and oppressed the poor, not simply for the needs of the nation, but so that they can make themselves fat and wealthy. And he says, it's not going to happen. I'm going to remove you from those houses that you thought you built. I'm going to remove you from those vineyards that you thought you planted and would get to see the fruit of. Verse 12, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. That is a sobering statement if you consider the God who made the stars and holds the sea. Not one injustice escapes his notice. There is no private sin that he doesn't see that's not laid bare and open before his eyes. He says, I see it. You who afflict the righteous, you who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. God says, the smart ones, the wise ones, the one who see that this is wrong, they've come to the point where they don't even say anything anymore. Why? Because it's not worth the trouble. They open their mouth for justice and they're hated for it. And so the wise ones, the smart ones, don't even say anything. They have corrupted and they have perverted justice. So what does God call them to do? Verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. Stop the corruption and seek what is good. And still, throughout all of this, throughout all the sin, throughout every sin that God knows exactly the depths of, He says that life is a possibility. Seek Him and live. And if they do, what happens? So the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. That star-commanding, sea-controlling, all-powerful God will be with you if only you would turn to Him. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Take what's corrupt and put it away. Take the sin that characterizes your nation, repent of it, and turn and wholeheartedly pursue what is completely opposite of that. It is not enough to stop doing the bad thing. A nation, a people, an individual seeking after God will not only be content to stop doing what is wrong, they will wholeheartedly pursue then what is right. And if they do that, the God who acts in perfect holy justice promises that he won't abandon his people. It says he'll be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all squares there shall be wailing, and in all streets they shall say, Alas, alas! They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there will be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Here's Here's the struggle and the tension. The Lord is coming. It says the Lord will pass through their midst. And if you know your Old Testament, the idea that the Lord passes through the midst of someone isn't new to them. Think of when they were slaves in Egypt and the Lord said that he would pass through the land in judgment. But for those with the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and on the lentils, he would pass over them. 
they've seen what it's like when God passes through a land in judgment, and it involves mourning, wailing, lamentation. And now God says, if you don't turn, if you refuse to seek me, that same covenant-keeping God will pass through the land, and he brings judgment with him. See, God is holy, and the holy God must be a just God. But right up until the moment of justice, he still extends this merciful call to seek him and live. So what do you do with a warning like that? How will Israel respond to the grace of God that holds out the lifeline in the middle of promised death and destruction? Well, tragically, what we see is a people who don't respond in humility. They don't respond in obedience. They respond instead with defiance. What does defiance look like? Well, as we go through the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're going to see what characterizes the defiance of these people. And the first thing that characterizes their defiance is a confused hope. Remember, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, judgment is declared on the nations surrounding Israel. We saw the map and the arrows that kind of circle and hem them in. And Israel would have rejoiced at the judgment of those nations. But now in Amos chapter 5, he reminds the people that that judgment that is going to come on the nations also is going to come upon them. Look at verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. See, Joel introduced the idea of the day of the Lord about 70 years earlier. Remember that prophetic timeline there of those minor prophets. And so by this time, what we see is that the thought or the notion of the day of the Lord had woven its way into the national consciousness. They knew about the day of the Lord. Not only did they know about the day of the Lord, they anticipated, eagerly anticipated the day of the Lord. Why? Because that was the time when God was going to get even on all of their enemies. As Israel looked at the day of the Lord, they saw it as a day of judgment for the other, for the outsider. And indeed it is. The day of the Lord is a time when God will pour out His righteous wrath on the sinful, rebellious peoples of the world. The day of the Lord is a time of clarity. The holy God of the universe exercising His justice against sin. But do not forget this. As often as you go through the minor prophets, you cannot escape this fact. And it's important when you come into the New Testament and you start to think about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord deals with the sins of the nations, but the day of the Lord is also specifically focused at the sins of God's covenant people, of purging them and preparing the remnant to live in His presence. The day of the Lord deals with the sins of the nations, and Israel was all on board for that, but they forget that the day of the Lord, or they had no conception of the idea that the day of the Lord dealt with them as a people. He says it's darkness and not light. Israel, you think this is going to be a time of light and prosperity and exaltation for you. It's not. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment and justice for you. And then he gives them these two pictures. He says, it's as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. It's like a man walking along the road and he sees a lion. Not a good thing. And so you turn and you run and you run around the corner and just as you think you've escaped from the lion, you run right into the arms of a bear, which is equally bad news in case you're wondering. You fled from death right into the arms of death. And the second picture, or he went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. The house is supposed to be a place of safety and refuge. 
And imagine that, coming in after the long day in the fields, leaning your hand against the wall in the cool of the evening in your house, thinking that now you can finally rest, and there is a serpent that bites you, and the place of security is now a place of danger and death. He says, that's what the day of the Lord is. You think that it's your time of escape. You think that it is your time of rest and even exaltation. Israel, don't you understand that that holy God who dispenses justice in the day of the Lord will start with his people. You think you're safe, but you're moving right into judgment. So Israel, wake up. In your defiance, you have a completely confused hope. And he moves on from there, and he begins to address now their corrupt worship. Look with me at verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Some of the strongest words in the entire Bible condemning false worship are right there. I hate, I despise your feasts. But God, you gave them to us. We're just doing what you said to do, and God doesn't just ignore them. God doesn't just get mildly frustrated at them. He says, I hate them. I despise them. Well, the God that I believe in doesn't hate anything. Then the God that you believe in doesn't conform to the God of the Bible. There's no soft spot for your best attempts at worship to placate the Almighty God. God hates false worship. It is an abomination to Him to pretend to approach Him in a way that He wants, but is really only in line with what your heart wants. He is not fooled by their feasts, by their festivals. He is not fooled by the fact that they somehow keep the religious calendar. He says He hates all of it. The offerings that you bring, not going to look at them. They don't matter. Kill every cow, every goat, every lamb. Give the best, give the worst. Give it all, it means nothing. Those songs that you sing, no matter how well you play, no matter how beautiful your voice is, they're like a noise, like an obnoxious droning sound in my ear. You send up all of this false worship. Look at what he says in 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's a sobering contrast. All of those things that you offer up ultimately found to be vain and empty and meaningless. And the last two verses of the chapter illustrate the justice that's coming But what's a little bit difficult to see is how long that justice has been delayed. Verse 25 says, Did you bring me sacrifices and offering during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? The wandering time in the wilderness, they had the law. God gave them the pattern for the tabernacle. He told them what the sacrifices looked like. He told them the days and the times, the seasons, and the why behind all of it. They had the pattern 
for worship. And then verse 26 says, you shall take up Sikuth your king and Kiyun your star god. Now, there's a way to translate that that I think fits better with the grammar and with the context that says, not you will, but you also carried along Sikuth your king and Kiyun your star god. The implication is that as they came out of Egypt, not only did they have the proper pattern for worship, but they carried along with them all the gods that they were already worshiping. Egypt corrupted God's people. They were exposed to all kinds of things, and the implication is that from the very beginning, this is a people who had idolatry embedded in their national identity. Which should be shocking, because not only did they know, but God still brought them to the land. And God established them with judges that pointed them back to him and kings that pointed them back to him and prophets that called them back to him. And what you see is not only justice delayed, what you see is mercy after mercy after mercy from generation to generation to generation, a long-suffering and patient God that has tolerated the false and failed worship of his people for hundreds of years as he pleads with them to return. This is not the temper tantrum, capricious God that he is sometimes made out to be. This is a patient and long-suffering God who desires and calls for the return of his people. If only they would listen. And a third characteristic of these defiant people comes as we open up chapter 6, and that is that they live complacent lives. These people are spiritually lazy. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. Zion, Jerusalem, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. It's a wide warning to God's people. But these people are secure. Remember, both the north and the south are living in a time of prosperity, a time of relative ease, of peace. But it hasn't made them worshipful. It has made them dull. And like Joel wrote, they need to be jolted out of their sense of a kind of complacency. He tells them, look around at the people around you. Do you think you're better? Pass over Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is Is their territory greater than your territory? Look around you. You think you're better than these people. By the way, you've been fighting with these people for hundreds of years. Do you really think you're better than them? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. You see disaster as something far off for another time and another place, and you forget, you ignore the fact that it's coming. Verses 4 to 7 give you this kind of graphic picture of a people at ease, lying on their beds, singing songs, inventing music and melodies. They see themselves living in kind of this golden age of the nation, but in their comfort, they don't see how desperate their situation is. Their ease and their complacency has made them spiritually fat and lazy, and a spiritually fat and lazy cannot people cannot turn to God. They don't see the need. Trials are hard. Pain is hard. Tragedy is hard. But those things have a way of driving us to the foot of the God who is able to care for us and sustain us. Ease and comfort and plenty have a way of making even God's people self-satisfied and really arrogant, which is what we'll get into next. Because they can't see how desperate their situation is, they're not going to call out to the name of the Lord. And so it says they will be first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The good times are going to end. The revelry is going to fade, and those who live in ease, those who are spiritually fat and lazy, 
cows of Bashan from last week, my favorite images in all the Bible, you're going to be the first to go into the judgment. Why won't God's people listen? Why are they unable to respond to the call of God? Why are they unable to find mercy rather than judgments? Because they're defiant. They're defiant and hard-hearted people, and it shows itself in their false hope. It shows itself in their false worship. It shows itself in their sense of laziness. And finally, what we're going to see is that they are a spiritually conceited and prideful people. They are full of a sense of their own strength and their own self-satisfaction. Look at verse 8. The Lord God has sworn by Himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. When the Lord promises, He's going to do it. When the Lord swears by Himself, He has put His own name and the reputation of His name on the line. I abhor, I hate the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. He hates the pride of His people. God has always hated pride. Pride led to the rebellion of Lucifer against the God who created him, that he would ascend and be like the Most High. Pride prevents people from turning toward God because they assume that they're good enough, strong enough, smart enough, uh, whatever enough to work their way back toward him. Pride destroys the humility that's necessary for salvation. And yet God has always promised to save those who come to him in humility. And Israel has this particular pride in their strongholds, in their cities. And God says, I'm going to tear it all down. Where you had mighty cities, there's going to be no one left. I'm going to take your complacency. I'm going to take your pride. I'm going to take your vanity. I'm going to take your security, and I'm going to turn it into terror. Verse 11, for behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. The Lord commands. The Lord speaks. That God who in Genesis 1 spoke and the heavens were formed and filled, the earth was formed and filled, breath and life were given. That same God who spoke creation into existence now speaks and destruction comes on his people. And you think a wall is going to stop it. You think your well-fitted army is going to stop the the God who can hold those stars, the Pleiades and Orion in his hands, the waters of the seas in his hands. You cannot stand against this God. Verse 12, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? The implied answer is no, of course not. It doesn't make sense. But Israel, you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You have taken what is good and pure and lovely and life-giving and you've turned it into this poisonous thing. Verse 13, you who rejoice in low debar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured karanim for ourselves? Now, low debar means nothing. No thing. Kanaim means horns or strength. So you read it with that in mind. It says, uh, you who rejoice in nothing. You say, have we not by our own strength captured the strong places? You see the arrogance in there? They rejoice in nothing. They think that they have done what brings them security. God says, behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they will oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. You think you're secure. You think that in your strength and in your wealth and in your might and in your military that you have made for yourself a place that cannot be shaken. God says, I'm going to speak and it is all going to fall. And when the nation comes, just like Walter said last week, when the nation comes, don't assume that it's because Assyria suddenly got its act together and got strong. It is because God spoke and his people were overcome. 
As people made in the image of God, we long for justice, don't we? But very often we long for justice when it comes on somebody else. We can look at chapter 1 and 2, and like Israel, we might say it is good and just when judgment comes on the other because that's deserving. And the danger is we might look at these chapters and say, well, Israel deserved it too. Of course they did. They're a wicked, fallen, idolatrous, rebellious people. Yes, Lord, bring judgment even on them. But of course, the danger is we can stop short just like Israel did. Like Israel, we might fail to see that the judgment that God brings on sin must also come to our sin. And so if we look, by God's grace, we do see areas in our life where we need to turn, where we need to repent, where we need to fall on our knees and ask His forgiveness, but we do that without despair. Lament without despair. Because that same great God who holds the stars and the seas continues to say, turn to me and live. That same great God of the universe says, for all who come to me, I'll extend salvation. I'll separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. They'll be remembered against you no more. That same God offers healing and restoration. So what do we do about it? First thing, seek the Lord and live. There's every possibility and even probability that there is someone here today, either in this building or watching online, that is running from the Lord directly into destruction. And it might not be today or this week, God's not mocked. He's not fooled. Your half-hearted attempts, my half-hearted attempts at religion, at rightness, fall infinitely short of his perfection. Seek the Lord and live. Today there stands before you the choice between life and death. And it's not a matter of bringing a different offering. It's not a matter of joining a particular club. It is not a matter of reading the right book. It's a matter of simply seeking the Lord, falling on your knees, asking for forgiveness, and turning and following after what He would call you to do. Would you seek the Lord today and live? Second, we need to consider our worship. That God who formed and holds the stars has the right to direct our worship. Not simply what we do on a Sunday, but as I move throughout my week, I do not get to choose what worship looks like, what is acceptable to God. It has never been based on my best efforts, my feelings, or my preferences. Worship demands a submission to what God demands. And when we do that, the wonderful thing is that even in our fallen state, even in our weakness, even in our timid prayers, even in our off-key songs, even with our faltering obedience, you and I can offer something that is pleasing to the perfect Lord of hosts. It's an amazing thing. And finally, strength comes through humility. Israel was so convinced of their own strength. Strength comes from weakness. Strength comes from our brokenness being found at the end of ourselves. Because there, 
we see that same star-holding, sea-controlling God do what we could never even imagine. Let's pray. Lord, in our weakness, you're strong. In our failure, you are faithful. Lord, make us a people who are worshipful. And even as we come together today to celebrate the Lord's table, we're reminded of the sacrifice that accomplished what we never could. And so, Lord, convict us of our sins. Bring us to repentance and restore to us the joy of our salvation. We know that you are good and that you are faithful, that you accomplish all things for your purpose and for the good of your people. We love you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And today we do celebrate the Lord's table and communion together. And so, two things. First, the ushers will come and they will hand out any elements that you didn't get. If you don't have one of the little uh, cups with the juice and the bread, raise your hand and the ushers will make sure that you get that. And then take a moment uh, before we do take those elements together and spend some time in prayer. If you don't know this God that I've been talking about, if you are not restored to relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then simply let this pass and then let's talk about it afterwards. If there's sin in your life that you need to confess, do it now. If there's restoration between a brother or sister that needs to happen, I would encourage you to do that now. Just take a moment in quiet thanksgiving, and we'll come back and we'll take the bread and cup together. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, you made a way when there was no way, no way that we could work our way back to you on our own. You sent the Son, the perfect Son of God, to live the life that we were called to but failed to, to die the death that should have been ours. Lord, you provided the sacrifice that satisfied the weight of sin. What a remarkable thing that we rejoice in. Amen.